VC is the wrong product for most businesses, including those who raise it or attempt to raise it. Most often, the reason that a VC will say no to a founder, aside from team reasons, comes down to TAM. When a VC makes a decision, they're not only thinking about, you know, the market size matters because you're backing into this decision of, will my initial check be potentially have the potential to return the entire fund when I invest in a single company? This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's show, I am very excited to welcome a fellow investor and friend here in the Inner Mountain West, Serene Pappenfuss, who is a principal at Kickstart Fund in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hi, Serene. Hey, Les. Hey, welcome. So awesome to have you. Excited to feature somebody from Kickstart. We've never had anybody from Kickstart on the podcast. We've had a lot of, not a lot, we've got some of your portfolio companies on, yeah. but you're the Kickstarter. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on. I'm flattered. I did not, I didn't know I was the first. So seriously, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. You know, and I, I, actually just to start off, why don't we, let's focus on you a little bit. Tell us, tell me a little bit about your story and where you grew up and how you found your way into the wild world of venture capital. Yeah, and feel free to stop me anytime. So I grew up in Tokyo, Japan. I'm half Japanese. I ended up going to Brigham Young University in Utah for, for my undergrad. And that's that was kind of like my first like formal foray into Utah, I suppose. Did management consulting out of school and then went into growth equity for about four years and then came into early stage VC directly after that and came back to Utah for that from the East Coast. So jumped around across the country, but this is where I'm at now. Awesome. And what at what age? When did you move from Tokyo to the United States? The first time was seven years old. So moved to this. Yeah, that's when I first learned English. And yeah, it was an adventure. Amazing. What a cool kind of early childhood you must have had. Do you still have memories from when you were growing up in Tokyo? Do you have? Yeah. So I went back for middle and, and part of high school. So the second time I lived there, I went to an international school. The first time I lived there, I was in a Japanese school. So definitely have memories both times. I see. Yeah. It was a, an amazing place to grow up and sometimes wish I could live there even now. Super cool. And what about, what was the, so BYU was the draw to Utah, I guess, initially, right? Yeah. That's what brought is there any anything any kind of similarities between you, you know Japan and Utah that like just just uniquely you could draw off of? I'd love to hear. Oh my gosh, I cannot think of anything. Nothing, nothing. That's well, that's what I would assume. But I thought maybe there'd be some cool revelations. Yeah, uh, I guess two things. So one is the people and the cultures are so different, but I love mm. the people in both. They just bring different mm. different draws thing that I did not know was similar until I was an adult is that both locations bring in quite a bit of ski culture. I didn't grow up skiing in Japan, but skiing is huge in northern Japan. So people often talk to me and they're like, oh my gosh, did you grow up skiing in Japan? And I'm like, no, I didn't. I didn't actually learn to do that until I was in Utah. So um, 
Yeah, those are the, honestly the only two things I could come up with. I should probably move <laughs> for this question in the future. No, that's cool. I like that. There, you know, by the way, there's a I'm a mountain collective supporter. That's what my family we like to ski. Yeah, and I think it's Sake Nasiko. Is that this? Is that's in northern Japan, right? They're on that. It's on the pass. I want to ski it. Yeah, it's hard to get there. Yeah, have you? Have you skied in Japan at all, ever? I have. I went for a school ski trip, but it was like, you know, three days. It's not enough to like actually learn how to ski properly, but I have Ah, skied in Japan once. Very cool. Yeah. I wonder how the snow quality compares to that Utah, that famed, infamous Utah snow. I did too. People tell me it's amazing. Yeah. Especially at a couple of resorts in particular, but I just wouldn't know. I mean, Utah really is the best snow on earth, I think. I've seen a few places and it's been the best so far, so. Yeah. Even Post Malone talks about how great the Utah snow is. So, yeah. I mean, it, it is. It's incredible, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Amen. So that's funny. What did you study at BYU? I studied poli-sci and Japanese. Oh, so you... Oh, interesting. So are you still quite a linguist? Like, do you still... Yeah. Obviously, you speak the language, but I mean, do you keep sharp on it? Yeah, people think it, people chuckle that I studied Japanese. The thing to know is that I grew up speaking Japanese. It was my first language and, you know, was able to pick up on speaking pretty quickly because of my mom, my grandma. But I I didn't really get good at reading and writing. And so I'm kind of illiterate, was kind of illiterate in Japanese. Um, I think the thing that got me better first was I served an LDS mission in Japan. So I was there for religious reasons in my 20s. And then when I came back from my mission, when I was at BYU, I realized that was something that I really wanted to stick with. Like I really did want to learn how to read properly in Japanese and wanted to level up so that I could communicate with my grandmother and friends in a much more meaningful way. So that, that was kind of like the motivating factor. Outside of that, I'm not particularly a linguist. Got it. I, uh, I mean, really impressive though, because I would imagine that once you speak Japanese, it's probably like even more difficult to learn how to read and write it. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, just because of how difficult I would assume it is to learn that from scratch. But now if you have to like almost backpedal to learn the characters and everything. It is tough. I think it's tough for a couple of reasons. I definitely want to acknowledge like I had a leg up on other people when I was studying and there comes to be, it came more naturally to me, I suppose. The tough thing with Japanese for everyone is that there's kind of three alphabets. There's hiragana, katakana, and then kanji. Kanji is like the originally Chinese characters that, you know, where one character symbolizes a word or a phrase. And learning that, I mean, there's just thousands of them. So it's a very difficult language to master from a reading and writing perspective. The other tricky thing for me personally is that I learned the language without learning like the rules of grammar, right? So people would be like, oh, but what? why is the sentence structured that way? And I'd be like, I don't know. It just sounds right that way. For the same way that I don't know what a, what was it, like a past participle or whatever the word. Right. It's like I would not be able to define that, right? right? And so I would take some of these classes and it would be like, having to return in some aspects to a 101 to understand why certain structures were there. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. Well, and we may have lost some of our listeners. I'm following along because actually I had a dear friend who who was a Japanese linguist actually during World War II. He passed away a few years ago at at the amazing age of like, I think he was 103 when he passed. But I used to grab lunch with Elver every month. And he would tell me these incredible stories about being a Japanese linguist during World War II. He was one of the first Americans on the ground in Tokyo, uh, you know, after the bomb got dropped. Uh, so, I mean, just unbelievable stories. But 
One of the things I used to love that Al would always tell me these, I think they're called, it's like Kotawaza. Is that, is it's like a proverb kind of thing? Uh-huh. Did I say that right? Yep. Is that? Yep. Yep. So Al had all these, he would bring these up all the time and they were like so incredible. And I'm sure, do you have any of the, any favorites that you'd like to share with us? Oh, I can't think of any less. You think I'm oh, much more. Oh, really? You're more philosophical than I am. <laughs> All right, I'm teasing you. Oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one. I actually looked one up because I wanted to find one at least that was relevant to venture. And it's you got to test my pronunciation on this. Asono hino nan nogare. Okay, what does that mean, list? Do you, do you can you translate it? Was that pronunciation just terrible? It's hard for me to understand, but yeah, of course, because it was horrible. <laughs> a lot of proverbs use incorporate old Japanese. It's almost like in English proverbs that are very old where you incorporate the or, you know, old words where like me having learned only modern Japanese and never studied old Japanese have a hard time understanding. So that might be a portion of it that last I don't. So here I want to translate to is one Japanese plum a day is an escape from that one day struggle. <laughs> it wasn't close <laughs> at all, was it? Anyway, really the translation is the discomforts that are caused by struggle can be healed by just one little piece, one little taste of happiness. So I think it's kind of relevant to founders, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. You need like one more thing to keep you going. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. A little taste of happiness. You know, you got that that term sheet and, you know, you're ready to go out and raise your A or something. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's cool. Anyway. All right. We got totally side railed, but I think that's such a cool part of you and your story. So I really wanted to kind of highlight it a little bit. I hope, I hope everybody thought it was as cool as I did. So. Well, thank you. All right. So BYU, poli sci and Japanese, you studied. How, what, you know, you mentioned that after that, you know, you got into management consulting and then you went into growth equity, but tell us, give us a little more detail because I, I really want to peel this back because you ended up at like the premier seed stage VC in the Rockies. Like how, how did it actually happen? Tell, give us some more detail on that at post BYU. Yeah. So I'll go from like the middle of management consulting, which was a job that I loved. It was, I think, what I needed at the time to learn certain frameworks and work styles, et cetera. You were, in, were you in Philly at this time? Is that right? No, I was at Cicero in Utah. Oh, in Utah. Okay. Um, yeah. So it was interesting. One of my mentors I was talking with at Cicero at the time, I told him some of my thoughts on my career. And he pointed out to me that it's funny, it just illuminates this fact that sometimes it just takes one person raising a flag where it leads you down a totally different path. But my mentor pointed out to me that I would probably be more passionate working with software companies and earlier stage companies versus the kind of profile that I was on average working with. And he was like, hey, you should just read some of these venture capital. I had no idea what VC was at the time. Like, but he said, you should subscribe to these, not um, subscribe to these newsletters such as Fortune Term Sheet. And see if this is something that, you know, get, gets you excited. And sure enough, it did. And, and one, one other thing that's so integral to my story is that my then boyfriend, now husband, was working in venture capital as well. And it was from him that I learned so much where I was like, oh, this, I, you know, for one, don't need my MBA to go get this job. And this, is, this actually is something I'm really interested in. And um, Fast forward, we moved to Philadelphia because he was doing his MBA. And I realized at the time I actually want to get a job at an early stage startup or in venture capital. And I was okay with either one. And I kind of had a bunch of criteria for what I was looking for in a venture capital fund. 
and just cold reached out to a bunch of different people. And one of those, two of those people ended up responding from the same fund, which is Susquehanna Growth Equity. And I was so impressed by the conversations I had there and the structure of the fund and the boss that I would potentially be able to work for who I ended up working for that I ended up accepting an offer there and ended up being, I think, the the most needle moving career move I could have made. It was that's awesome. Such an amazing job. What a great firm to kind of launch into as well. Yeah. For those that are not familiar with SGE, it's a growth equity fund. And the cool thing about that fund is that it's a true single LP structure. And so it makes it much more flexible in terms of how they work with entrepreneurs, investing and hold time horizons. And that's a, it's a very unique value prop that you can offer in venture. So for a variety of reasons, my boss was the best opportunity I could have gotten at the time, I think. Very cool. And so, so now you're in Philly with your still boyfriend or now husband? Now husband. Now husband. Yep. Okay. <laughs> awesome. No, I meant, I'm sorry. I meant, were you guys still dating in Philly? Oh, good question. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I meant timing wise. I know you guys are married now. I know. I know. Plus you met him. Yeah. Uh, so we actually got married a week before he started school, honeymooned, flew to Philadelphia. He started school the next day. It was a Honeymoon, honeymoon in Philly? That's a new one. No, I should be more careful with my words. No, we got a cheesesteak on the corner. Of, yeah. No, we honeymooned and then flew straight to Philadelphia. Pause. <laughs> Very cool. But by the way, Philly, I'm from Pennsylvania originally. Philly's a great Whoa. city. We got Eagles fans out there. Please don't be haters. I love Philly. So anyway. Go All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. So, but you're both, so you're both in, you both, it seems like are, you know, having great career, early careers. He's going back to school. What I'm still trying to figure out, how did you get back to the Rockies? How did it happen? Yeah. So I, I think there were a few things that came into play. Um, we loved Philadelphia and we loved my job. And it was a kind of a surprise for everyone, including me, when I came back to Utah. I think that a few things happened. One was my husband started a business, founded a business, and Watching him scale an early stage startup that was venture backed was really exciting. And I realized that on average, there was a difference between visionaries slash builders at the early stage versus optimizers at the later stage. I'll let people interpret that as they will. The second was I found that there was probably I had a hypothesis that there was merit in focusing on true ecosystem investing, where when I was working at SGE, it was such a wonderful opportunity and got to work with companies in Ireland, Israel, Chicago, Texas, et cetera. But I, I felt like you would see, you would have deal advantage and be able to see other benefits from focusing on a particular location. And so I kind of thought about, okay, what are places that have true upside potential where exciting things are happening, but it can grow into so much more? And I identified three spots personally, and one of those was Utah. And so in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, my last year at SGE, if the right thing came up where I felt like it was a fund that focused on an ecosystem, had an amazing profile, a bunch of other things I was considering as well, team, et cetera, I would probably join that fund. And so when Gavin from Kickstart talked to me in March 2021, I was intrigued and that brought us back to Utah. I see. How'd you meet Gavin originally? What was it through? It's through Jason, my husband. Oh, uh, oh, that's right. You've been avoiding that one. We, because it's he. 
Your husband is a Portco, right? Of Kickstart. Yeah. Yeah. He's a Portco and he's an investor before business school. Oh, wow. So lots of ties. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. It's kind of weird, but a lot, like many of the partners had been at our wedding and I just never even thought, it never occurred to me that these would be eventually be the people I would work with. That's amazing. But that's the business, right? I think it's a really important takeaway. Like this is a very relationship oriented you know, just startups in general, venture in general, it's all about the relationship. So it makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. And at least it happened in that order and not the other order, because then we'd be making all kinds of nepotism jokes. And yeah. Oh, you backed your husband, huh? Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. Well, luckily, it happened in totally different funds. He was a fund four company and I came in a fund five. I mean, honestly, when Gavin asked if I was interested, one of the first things I said was, I don't know. Like, I don't want ev- I don't want people to assume that I got this just because my husband did it. And of course, right. Gavin and others were uh, really kind and thoughtful about that. And, I, you know, I, I wanted them to make a fair decision. So, yeah, it was a tough decision at the time, partly for that very reason. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and I appreciate that. I really appreciate the transparency there. But, you know, knowing your team their reputations. I mean, and for those, for folks that don't know about Kickstart, I mean, just one of the most incredible, I mean, look at the performance, look at the companies they're in. That's one thing. I'm talking purely on a people level. These are some of the greatest people you'll meet in the industry as an early stage founder and kind of people I want to work with on every deal. So like, I get it. And I I can imagine that they were very careful and very considerate in, in that and step through that. So that's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Great team. So March 21, when did you start? When did you start a Kickstart? Yeah, it was July 2021. Right. So obviously some time passed. Like they they really let me take my time on my decision. I helped build the team that I was on at SGE. And so the partners let me stay on as long as I felt comfortable to make sure that there was a good transition. So yeah, it's July 2021. Awesome. And just also, I want to be, I'm going to be a little cheeky and funny about this, but I want to make sure we get the message out. This is not Kickstarter. This is not Kickstarter. This is not Kickstarter. This is different. The Kickstart Fund, right? This happens. Yeah. Does this happen? Does this confusion happen a little bit? Less. It happens all the time. Can you tell me a story about this? Please. So, so I was at the dentist, and you know how a dentist and their hygienist will always have like they'll carry a one point five way conversation where they're like working in your teeth and. <laughs> I can't talk right now because you got to figure my mouth. Yeah. So then again, while I have like this like scalpel in your mouth. Yeah. So the dentist or no, sorry, the hygienist was asking me about where I work. And I said, Kickstart. I invest in tech companies. And she she was like, Kickstarter. I know a lot of people saying it keeps working in my teeth. And normally I correct people immediately. And I'm like, oh, people get it confused. And he starts going on about. So Brandon Sanderson is one of the most successful Kickstarter campaigns. And. She went on and on about his books and his latest book. And after 15 minutes, I was like, we're in too deep. Take the vacuum out of my mouth right now. I don't care if I'm going to swallow all this toothpaste. I got to tell you. I can't correct her at this point. <laughs> so my husband and I try to book our dentist appointments back to back so that we you know, can just drive one time. And he was in the waiting room. But the hygienist brought me back to the waiting room where my husband was. And she said, you like congrats on all the amazing Kickstarter campaigns. You guys have crushed it. And my husband is starting to open his mouth and I'm behind her. And the, I mean, listeners can't see this, but I'm like making the motion of like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Oh, man. So happy all the time. Too funny. That's like a Seinfeld episode. It's got to be. If not, it's great material. That's <laughs> super funny. So Kickstarts, 
the fund, Kickstart Fund's mission is to help build great companies in the Wild West. Am I, is that right? Did I? Yeah, to find and build the best companies in the Mountain West. Yep. Yeah, cool. What, tell us a little more about kind of the team, the strategy, just like what that means in practice on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so the team is about a dozen of us. It's changed so much over time, but the mandate has really been the same since day one when Gavin founded it. And the fund was founded back in 2008. And it's always been a seed slash pre-seed fund. And we're typically like the first institutional check in tech companies that are raising venture rounds. So we invest primarily in software and marketplace companies. And and those companies were, have always been located in the Mountain West primarily. That's been the mandate since day one. I think Gavin was a visionary when he recognized this, that, you know, there wasn't really a fund that focused on the region back then. Companies, founders typically had to go to the coast to raise or get poor terms from angels. And so there was kind of the, this dearth of opportunity for them here. And that's that, in that sense, the mandate, the regional focus has been the same since day one. And that primarily focuses on Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, but anyone building in the Mountain West, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. So throw Montana in there. You guys have a Montana portfolio company. Absolutely. Right? Which, you know, I yeah. I should point out, Les, that you sent her to me. And the thing that made me really excited about investing in her initially was listening to her episode on this show. Oh, listen to that plug for Founding the Rockies. You heard it here, founders. You want to get funded, be a guest on the show. No, I'm kidding. That's awesome, though. But, but Michelle, I mean, Michelle Huey, founder of ShopDot, an incredible founder. And like, I mean, incredible to have her in Montana, by the way. I mean, she could be anywhere doing anything, but she chose Montana very deliberately. So, yeah. Yeah, she her story is just killer. Just the amazing immigrant story, hustle story where she's, you know, worked on something else that scaled and was successful and then decided to respond later on with her own software startup that solved the problem that she identified earlier. Everything about her story is just awesome. She's great. Yeah, very cool. Well, and I love the strategy. I got to say, it's so good that, you know, NFC decided to copy it. You know, I mean, I mean that in a very friendly way because we go late. We go a little bit later than you guys. We don't really do the pre-seed. We'll do sign of seed to seed too. So I think that's where our firms have been very complimentary. So that's been fun. But yeah, Mountain West, what a great place to live, work, and do venture deals. Yeah. Uh, so Kickstart is on... You you announced earlier this year, or no, sorry, not earlier this year. I think it was last fall, the sixth fund, right? You're on your sixth fund. And there's some exciting news as of kind of recent. I mean, it's not going to like, we're not going to like break the press on this, but what's the latest news with regards to the sixth fund? Yeah, we announced 230 million of capital. So 175 Woo! out of fund six and about 53 million out of our co-invest fund. So tons to deploy. And as part of that, you know, I mentioned the different states as part of the region that we focus on. And some of our best companies have come out of Colorado. So, you know, Utah has always been home base for us, but this is also a signal of not only do we want to continue investing in Colorado, we're opening an office and have a GP who will be in that office. And hopefully we, we expand that over time. So it, wow. it was an announcement for a variety of reasons. That's right. And that's Dalton's move into to Colorado, right? That's the announcement. Very cool. 
What? Uh, tell me a little bit more about just how you think about how Kickstart thinks about kind of the macro environment and kind of what that's implying for VC right now and how it's affecting maybe your strategy in the Rockies. Yeah, I think there are a couple of challenging things as part of the macro environment. And maybe we can double this conversation with, you know, trends that I see in venture capital more broadly and how this kind of ties with that. So I think one of the challenges that came from 2021 to be fixed in this period is explaining to funder, sorry, explaining to founders that fundraising is not the end goal. I think a misunderstanding that became largely common from that period of investing is that a lot of founders started getting in this mentality of, my goal is to just raise the Series A or the, my goal is to raise a Series B. And I think that, you know, the caveat to my argument that I'm making is that, sure, you have to think about the marathon and increments, right? And getting you to the next step is, is essential. But the goal isn't to raise a Series A. The goal is not to raise a Series B. The goal is to build an incredible business. And building an amazing business versus aiming for a benchmark that can change opens more doors and gives you more optionality. And the founders that have really internalized that are, I think, the ones that will be able to have more optionality as they think about exits, rounds, or how they want to grow their company, given the change that's happened in terms of the expectations of growth versus profitability. So that's been one of the tough things, I think, to, to deal with. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that because it's like, well, for founders in particular, there's always complexity. You know, I, I remember a mentor telling me once, like, create, uh, create and control for the things that you can, because for the things that you can't control for, you have like it's going to create complexity as it is, right? And I, what you said really kind of grounds to that as well, because it's like, I feel like what the past few years have taught us is we have no idea what the future is going to hold. So optionality is king. And like, I love what you said about building an incredible business, you know, that if you focus on that as the goal, like you're going to, you're going to end up in a place where you have options and where you can survive and live another day and continue to thrive and grow beyond that survival. So I, it's a really important takeaway. So what else? You know, one other thing that weighs on me quite a bit, and Bryce Roberts actually wrote a really great piece on this a while ago and articulates some of my thoughts here really well, is that so BC became really sexy, particularly over the last couple of years and became be, becoming a founder and saying that you're a founder became the sexy thing as part of that. And this is a difficult thing to articulate, but I wish entrepreneurs had the opportunity to go through a masterclass of not only how VC worked, but how the unit economics worked as part of that to really better understand what are VCs looking for and should I raise from that type of funding profile? It's so true. Because I feel like when I was a founder, it's like, man, if I only knew what I know now when I was a founder, but why can't that be done? There's like this mysticism around VC. Yeah. It's not rocket science. It's actually pretty dang simple. I think a lot of classes or, you know, the, the, there will be uh, community events that exist around how to better pitch a VC, et cetera. Like a lot of those things exist. Yep. But that's entirely different from how a VC makes a decision based on the unit economics. And the thing that, that Bryce, for instance, points out that I'm like, yes, this hit the nail on the head is that VC is the wrong product for most businesses. 
including those who raise it or attempt to raise it. Yeah. So what I mean by that is that most often, you know, this is painting with a broad brush, but most often the reason that a VC will say no to a founder, aside from team reasons, comes down to TAM, a total addressable market, at least for me personally. So why does this matter? You know, when you, when, when a VC makes a decision, they're not only thinking about, you know, the market size matters because you're backing into this decision of, will my initial check be potentially, have the potential to return the entire fund when I invest in a single company? And that's what we endearingly refer to in, internally at Kickstarter as dragons. The joke at Kickstart is we, we look for you dragons, not unicorns, where a unicorn, for those listening, is companies that have achieved a billion-dollar valuation. But that billion-dollar valuation may not matter at all if you don't have meaningful ownership percentage or if you didn't invest at a, an, in, an, an interesting valuation, et cetera. It can come down to a variety of reasons. And so dragon potential is, can this company actually return the entire fund through that first check? And, you know, the other reason that this matters and this ties in with, you know, VC trends that we're seeing more broadly is that when, uh, and I want to be careful with what I say because VC still is an industry that has so much merit and I still believe in it, hence I'm a, a, since you and I are VCs, but I think there are a lot of things to consider as, you know, in terms of, you know, how all of us are moving this industry as we continue to think about it, as founders think about which funds to raise from, but you see this trend of funds getting bigger over time, including Kickstart. And there are certainly a lot of pros that come from raising from funds that are bigger or more mature. And some of those can be the signal that you get from that lead investor that can be reserves or follow-on potential for that founder. But I think that there are some downsides to consider for the industry, which has largely been, um, to a certain extent, it, necessitated by what VC as an industry has become over the last five to 10 years in particular, is that each initial check necessitates a larger exit or outcome as funds get bigger over time. And the point here... It's quite a, te it's quite a teeter-totter of like incentives that's really strange, right? It is. And I think, you know, that this is where we potentially do entrepreneurship a disservice by increasing expectations on outcome potential, where... On one hand, let's say, you know, the company that you're looking at is a good company and it has an interesting, it, it's working on an interesting product or problem. It's servicing an interesting market. But if it doesn't have that X billion dollar outcome potential, as a VC, in most cases, you have to say no. Like it just does not make sense for your fund size and your, the LP that you're servicing. And everything else could be perfect, right? Amazing team, amazing timing, amazing to go down the list. It's all great. I love this company. I love this deal. And I have to say no. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so it's an almost feels almost impossible to tell a founder that it's a no. It's not you. It's me. <laughs> yeah. No one wants to hear that. Right. Yeah. And in, yeah. in many cases, many people are building businesses that are incredible, but just don't have 10 billion plus of outcome potential. And explaining that can be extremely difficult. And in some cases, like we are wrong. In most cases, we are wrong as BCs. And we can be wrong on market sizing, among other factors. But that, I think, is, uh, I don't know if I want to call it an existential threat, but it's something to consider really seriously as an industry because it's where VC is trending. And it's become increasingly difficult as a VC to produce those, you know, truly outlier outcomes. Yep. 
but it's also, you know, how do we better begs this question of how do we better uh I don't I want to find the right verb here, but how do we better service founders to ensure that they're getting funded in the best ways possible when venture capital or certain segments of venture capital may not be the best answer for them? Yeah, for sure. I love it. It's such a great thread you peeled back there. And I'm glad you shared all that. Everything from the unicorns to dragons. We'll put the Bryce Roberts link maybe to an article or two in the show notes. So really good tidbits there. That's great. That's awesome. What about uh, what about kind of a little bit of a pivot from there, but still related is how do you think about the industry, kind of the difference between growth and VC? Because like you used to be on the growth side. Yeah. What can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's also an important kind of phase line for founders to think about. And I don't think we've ever really had somebody on the show that maybe has experience with both. So I'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah, they're very different. I thought they would be more similar than they are when I first joined Kickstart and have just learned over time how different they are. So with growth, there are multiple flavors of growth equity is something I should acknowledge. But growth equity, for those listening, is tends to be the this middle ground between venture capital and private equity, where in some cases you're taking a minority or a majority stake in a business It's called growth equity because it's not quite private equity where you're not focused on average on cost cutting. You're focused on injecting capital for true growth, but it's past the product market fit stage. So on average for those companies of that profile, it tends to be, you know, 10 million plus in air or net revenue and growing a meaningful percentage over time. So by nature of the company size and how, you know, quote, repeatable the sales motion is, you could do a lot more sophisticated analysis on the health of a company. So that can range from, you know, retention, cohort analysis, um, burn, burn ratios, et cetera. So you look at sales efficiency and growth in different ways than you do as a venture capitalist. And as a venture capitalist, you're focused so much more on founders, the team profile, and how do we just get to product market fit? And you know, it's a totally different motion in terms of founder-led sales versus, uh, you know, the sophisticated, you know, cuts that you can do at the growth stage. So, variety of ways of looking at it, and yeah, the just the analytical stuff I think is what differentiates the two. Makes sense. Has any of that changed on the venture side over the past? Oh, you know, <clears throat> couple weeks or so, just in terms of how you are seeing folks think about making more kind of metric-based decisions or more like, like are the investment decisions getting increasingly more challenging for folks to get committed at the earlier stage? More is it, is, in other words, is it turning more into like growthy, growth equity-like decision-making? Uh, it's tough to say. Maybe at the Series A, it, it's more so. At the seed, it's still so hard to because it's just inherently too early. Yeah, they don't, the metrics don't exist. Yeah, I think like yeah. the flip side to what you're asking is that you can think about it from a terms perspective. I see terms changing for some folks with what they're getting in market. It hasn't changed too meaningfully at Kickstart, but I do observe that for our companies raising at later rounds. I see. Yeah. Uh, what about, you know, kind of also related to the topic, you know, you're the first investor we've had on the podcast. Since I'll be very positive, I'm not going to mention the letters V, S, or B in any particular order. 
we, I'm going to, so I'm going to say you're the first investor we've had on the podcast since First Citizens Bank made an acquisition. How, what's been your reaction or the portfolio's reaction to the wake of the last few weeks? How, how are you thinking about things? Yeah, it's a crazy time. B is, has just been an incredible. Hey, I said we weren't going to talk about that. <laughs> I'm teasing. That's what I was, that's what I, yeah, that's what we were avoiding. But no, I'm teasing. Yeah, we all know yeah. what happened. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, they and, and others, too, but they've in particular just been such an amazing partner to us and many of our portfolio companies. So for sure, it's been, yeah, a crazy whirlwind. And the sad thing is, I think we're anticipating a really big credit crunch over the next, I don't know how many months or years as a result of this, just because SVB has been one uniquely to service early stage startups where other banks just didn't touch or want to put in the time. So yeah, I think there will be a lot of second order effects that we just aren't even thinking about, but we'll see over the next, I don't know how many months or years. Yeah, I totally agree. And on a very serious note, I mean, SVB, an incredible institution for so many years, such a trailblazer for our industry, for venture banking, and just so many incredible people that I've also worked with, you know, over the years at that institution. So, you know, hopeful that everybody lands in a good place and and that we can move forward. But you're right, it does have implications to credit, I think. It has implications to, I think, just how we think about things, right? I mean, I never assessed who we bank with as a risk. We underwrite a lot of risk in venture. I never thought about banking as like, oh yeah, like who, who does it? Who's the company bank with? Like, we may, we maybe want to, you know, think about that. Absolutely. I mean, there are just so many effects that people don't think about. I mean, the obvious one is that some companies didn't, were feared making payroll the following week when sure. first hit. But I think some of the other things to point out was one, if you're, regardless of whether you bank with SVB or, you know, it, if it were to be any other bank in that scenario, if your payroll provider banks with SVB, you were in a pinch that day. Um, and then, you know, SBB too, this goes back to the, you know, the amazing part of the ecosystem that they service, but they provide, you know, credit lines or, you know, which can be serviced for accounts payable in some instances. And so some of our marketplace businesses feared what would happen if, you know, SBB were to go under. So yeah, tons of implications that people don't think about on, in terms of how a business is run on the back end. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even one observation for me that was pretty wild is, you know, you think about like, could the in existing investors potentially have bailed out some of these companies that were, you know, in, in a real in dire straits? And it's like, in one particular company, there was like five VCs on the cap table and all of them banked with SVP. So there was these singular dependencies that were just so interwoven that, it, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. All right. Well, I want to make sure we talked a little bit about that on today's episode, just because it's so recent. And, you know, so thank you for indulging me. The But let's get back to some more positive stuff, because I think there's a bright future ahead for a lot of your portfolio and for this new fund. So I'd love to know, looking forward, where's what's in store for Kickstart's future? What are some of the goals for 2023 and beyond? And excited to hear about more about this new fund, maybe highlight some of the flavors of entrepreneurs you, you're looking for and kind of a call out for, you know, for what's next. Yeah. I mean, we're going to keep looking for outlier startups in the region. So, you know, the folks that, you know, really feel like they can have dragon potential, going back to what we talked about earlier, and are building a, 
you know, SaaS startup or a marketplace startup that they feel like fits the bill and we're a good partner, they should absolutely reach out to me. You know, as part of the announcement, I mentioned that, or we talked about how we're opening up an office and Dalton is going to be the first person to move there. I'm in Colorado, I think every two to three weeks for board obligations and meetings as well. So, you know, those two states, as well as the others are going to be where we continue to place a lot of focus. And I don't think that'll end anytime soon. So if you fit the bill, absolutely come talk to us. Awesome. Calling all dragons. We'll put Serene's contact info in the show notes. All right. Love it. Awesome. So I got two more questions. I always like to end on something fun, but kind of my last more eh, kind of serious. I mean, when am I ever serious? But uh, my last kind of serious question, I'd love to know from you. I know you're somebody that I've really admired, you know, working with you on a board and admire your thoughtfulness, admire your just attention to detail, the words you choose, when you choose to deliver them. And I've observed, I think, and I'm sure this goes for a lot of the founders you serve, um, you're really a great mentor and a great teacher, but I don't want to know about that. I want to know what you've learned. What have you learned from founders that you've worked with? Maybe a takeaway or two, something that a founder has taught you about yourself or maybe about being a VC, something fun. Oh, that's really nice of you. Um, That's tough. I don't know if it's a lesson in particular versus just empathy. And I think being married to a founder really helps. But being a founder really is one of the hardest jobs in the world. I love the quote that Michelle actually gave. She's told me this in person, but she actually gave it on your episode too with her is the highs are high and the lows are lonely. And I felt like that was the most apt way to put it, where I think it's important. It's such a tough balance as an investor when you have a fiduciary responsibility to point out certain things and point out the hard feedback that no one in the room may want to hear while also balancing that the fact that the founder that you're talking with is going through something really difficult and that balance of being the cheerleader as well as the um, the person that carries the responsibility. It's a tough thing. And that constant reminder of take a step back and empathize and know that this is the hardest thing. It's way harder than my job. It's a good reminder. So, so great that you shared that. And actually, you just reminded me that's it's very authentic and real of you to share that because you just reminded me of something, an experience that we had with a founder around the holidays when we had dinner at the founder's house after a board meeting. And I remember that took me back so far to my past when I was a founder. And I just, I, it really helped me realize and empathize with like, this is the person, this is the family this is the, their children. And these are people. This is their life. This is their life. Yeah, exactly. It's so important yeah. to, to keep that humanness to everything we do as people, but I think especially in this business. So that's a great takeaway. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. And it goes back to Michelle again. Man, this episode is like a love fest for Michelle. But Yeah, arms founders. I mean, she's so awesome. They're all good. They're all good. But we're just going to give Michelle two call outs on this. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. All right. Last question. And now we get to get fun. It's been fun the whole time. It's been awesome. <laughs> it's always uh, less. All right. So fun. The fun one. I know you like to travel. All right. I know you've been around the, you know, you like to get around the world a bit with your husband. What is a place that you are either super excited about visiting 
maybe a place that you have plans already to go or somewhere that you like can't wait to make plans? Oh, okay. We, we've talked about going to Tanzania. I frankly don't know if it'll be possible given it's really hard to pull away a founder from their business for mobile mm-hmm. There's that empathy again. Yeah, coming out, being married to one. Yeah. It's the reality. Yeah. So yeah, honestly, the two trips that we're thinking about are one, Tanzania to climb Kilimanjaro and wow. Safari. That's a trip you can't just like go on. You got to prep for that one. You got to yeah. like yeah. prep for that one. Yeah. We're big hikers and we love the outdoors and we want to do Sub-Saharan Africa. So is Kilimanjaro the highest peak on the African continent? I believe so. I think it is. Yeah. Wow. That's a good one to bag. That's Yeah. Cool. That'd be fun. Or this is like the opposite in many ways. But we're thinking of doing South Korea and Japan. Because I'm missing it. <laughs> it's familiar, but I'm sure it's still exciting for both. Yeah. Of you. That's great. Very yeah, cool. quite you less. Where are you excited about anywhere? Oh man, I, I rarely get the reciprocation here. So I actually uh I'm super excited. One of my dear friends is getting married in Mexico. And I've been to Mexico a bunch, but I've never been to Mexico City. Me either. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. And uh, you know, I honestly I maybe this is a little too much, but I don't like to travel that much. I get stressed by it a lot, based international travel. It just has this response, and a lot of it has to do with some, you know, a former me, former life. But it stresses me out. I'm always good once I get there and I get familiar and I get on the ground. But Mexico has been a place I've actually gone back to a bunch, and now I'm like comfortable. I feel like it's like, you know, I'm not even leaving the country. So I'm so excited about that trip and also to see Mexico City. And I love Mezcal too. So you know, jealous, jealous, in pictures. Yeah, I will. Well, Serene, this has been such a pleasure having you on the show. It's always, always a pleasure to just uh, to interact, but I think especially hearing your story and sharing that story with our other founders and funders and contributors in our ecosystem. Just want to thank you for your time today. And in closing, if you would, please just share a little bit about where founders can find more about you and more about Kickstart, the fund, online. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm the only Serene Pappenfuss online. P-A-P-E-N-F-U-S-S. So my Twitter handle is Serene Pappenfuss. My email is serene at kickstartfund.com. So if anyone has questions, absolutely don't hesitate to, to reach out. All right. Especially if you're a dragon, you know where to go. Yes. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Serene. Thanks, Les. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.